Our gracious God, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark. Uh, that we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this testimony of the apostles, your written word to us. Uh, and we pray that you might teach us more um, how we might live in the light of your grace to us. And we pray that you'll give us soft hearts and uh, minds that are able to understand, give us wills that are ready to follow you, and we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we begin the reading in Galatians 5, the last verse, 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Sorry. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers and sisters. Amen. Father, your word is life to us and uh, your creation, your new creation uh, is the future. Please help us to, um, to get on board with your word and your plans. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how does the letter to the Galatians 
the churches in Galatia, how does this letter finish? Is there a kind of a nice wrapping together of all the ideas? Uh, and is there a word for Trinity Church, Victor Harbour, from Galatians for this moment? I must admit, I find this final chapter of Galatians a little bit tricky to distill. Uh, there seem to be lots of threads in that last chapter. Uh, do they weave together, is the question I've been asking myself, or are they a bit of a grab bag of unrelated uh, thoughts that Paul hasn't got around to yet, and here they are in the last chapter? Well, I think they actually do weave together after reflecting on this, and I think the clue is that he goes back to talking about the big topic, circumcision. <laughs> oh yeah, circumcision. Um, you know, that's been the presenting issue for the whole letter. It's not an issue at all today. So we're kind of going, oh, wow, this again. Um, but it was a real hot topic for the church of the first century. Because being a member of the people of God was formally a question of your ethnicity. You had to be a Jew or you had to become a Jew. Uh, but now, because of Jesus, it is a question of faith. You can be of any nationality. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was one of the key markers of being a Jew. It demonstrated your inclusion in the people of God. But with the arrival of the Messiah, what makes you a member of the people of God is that you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And that is our gospel. That is what we, we hold to today. But the question of the day uh, between the lines here uh, in, in Galatians was, do non-Jews who take on faith, the, the, the Gentiles, previously outsiders, but now because of the new system, they're, they're insiders, but do they also need to take on these markers of Judaism? And there's this group called the Circumcision Group, and they say, yes, you do. You need to kind of become a Jew as well. But Paul says, no. Uh, that is a misunderstanding. Even worse than that, it's an undermining of the gospel. And that's what this letter of Galatians has been all about. And he, he goes back to this right here in the final chapter. What does it look like to be among the people of God? How are you included? And what are the implications for the way you live your life? That's what Galatians has been about. And so there is, I think, a key verse for all of Galatians here at the end. Now, in one sense, it's all of verses 12 to 16. You may have it open in front of you. Uh, it may come up on the screen in bits uh, behind me. But, uh, you know, he, he kind of reminds them why he's written the letter. And he says, I'm using big letters here with my own hand for emphasis, according to verse 11. But I think verse 15 is the key. Verse 15, he says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Uh, what counts is the new creation. Now that sounds very similar to a verse we heard back in chapter 5, verse 6, where he said, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So these are questions that really matter to Paul. What are the, what are the implications of this? He really wants to finish this letter with a punch. He's like a military parachutist trying to land his parachute in exactly the right spot for maximum strategic impact. And here's what I think he's getting at here. These, these words, new creation, don't sort of gloss your eyes past those, oh yeah, Christian jargon, blah, blah, blah. 
These are big words. New creation. New creation. This is the scale of gospel impact. The gospel is not back page news. The gospel is not bottom of the feed news. This is as big as let there be light. This is uh, what has now started with the cross and the resurrection will lead to complete renewal of all things as the old is done away with and the new flourishes into eternity. This is big. This is extraordinary. And what we absolutely need to know is what our role is in the unfolding of this new creation. It's God's initiative and God's power at work, but you and I are in the front line as this is all happening. We're not just watching. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's talking about your standard Christian, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. You see, when a person is connected to the crucified Christ, this new creation becomes manifest for all to see. The whole world is going to change, but it begins with people. It begins specifically with us, the people of faith in Christ. We are literally changing the world. So you've got this mega scale in mind of what's going on and what our, you know, where we fit. A transformation far more profound than any social or political movement or far, far more significant than any scientific or medical advancement. So what's your job? How are we to take our place in what God is doing? Well, I, I perceive in this passage that there are some countercultural principles, subversive principles. And this is kind of how we live, and this actually is how we, in a way, um, play our part in the new creation. And I want to look at these three subversive principles this morning, each of which is radical, each of which is a little painful, uh, but each of which uh, are revolutionary. And are you up for them? Are you up for being different, to changing your approach in order to be of maximum usefulness to Jesus? So principle number one then of the new creation is the principle of non-comparison. The principle of non-comparison. Let's start with verses three and four. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves with someone else. Comparing yourself with others is a problem for Christians. It actually undermines our message because grace says that we all have a problem to deal with before God. And if we make comparisons, we make it seem like those characteristics that we compare ourselves on are more important than our need for God's grace. Paul spells this out in, in his own context, aiming his rebuke at those who are undermining the message of grace by insisting on circumcision. Verse 12 and 13, he says, 
Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. See, they're comparing and they're wanting to, they're, they're wanting to get one up. The problem here is not some obscure finer point of theology. This is conceit. The circumcision group is trying to impress people. They're boasting about their successes and all the while they're trying to avoid any kind of conflict or any kind of persecution. But Paul says, don't do this. Don't be like this. Test your actions, brothers and sisters. Evaluate your, yourself on your own without comparing yourself with others. The church is not a place for moral hierarchy. And that's true for all of us, wherever we are on the pecking order. Now, you may have noticed that we started our Bible reading today with the last verse of chapter 5, because I think that's the launch pad for chapter 6. It gets to the heart of this pecking order issue. You may not have seen it at the start, but this, this comparison game. See what I mean? Chapter 5, verse 26 says, Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. The key word here is conceited. What does this mean? The Oxford Dictionary defines deceit as personal vanity or pride. The original Greek word that Paul used literally means empty glory or, or pointless boasting. And so do you know the old-fashioned word vainglorious? Vainglorious, it means all those things, pride, vanity. That actually translates this word conceit perfectly. Uh, let us not become vainglorious, glorying in vanity, if you like, or vainly trying to glorify yourself or something like that. So pride and vanity, they are the death of us. Okay, They are the death of Christian fellowship. This is the opposite to the fruits of the Spirit that we looked at last week because the person in step with the Spirit is other-centered, but the person who is proud or vainglorious is self-centered, glorying in vanity. And so Paul gives us two visible signs in this verse, verse 5, 20, chapter 5, verse 26, of vainglory, provoking and envying. So the first is provoking, literally to irritate or make angry. And I've got a question for you. Do you provoke someone who is more powerful than you or less powerful than you? Provoking is, you, you, you provoke someone, if you provoke someone more powerful than you, it's a risky business, isn't it? You know, poking the bear is dangerous, right? But poking the lizard, that can be fun. You know, poking the ants. Uh, and provoking is what bullies do. They, they look down and they poke. And that's, that's a status thing. They taunt or they speak behind your back. Bullies like to exploit advantage over others. You're below me in the pecking order. I'm going to make sure you know it. Of course, this is not like Christ, who, although he is much higher in status than we were, he poured his blood out for us. So provoking doesn't belong here, brothers and sisters. Um, the question is, do you like to remind each other, even subtly, that you are well established in the church? You belong here. You are, you're one of the important people. Um, or that you're really well established in good deeds, or you're well regarded by people around. This is comparative and it comes from pride. 
doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, that is pride. Second, envying. Do you envy someone more powerful than you or less powerful than you? You envy up, don't you? Uh, it's when you want some, what someone else has, their possessions or their, their power or something that you want for yourself. You know, I want that life. Uh, it might be their status or their good looks or their skills or even their personal characteristics. Now, this is bog-standard human relationships, the normal way we relate in society. It's how people think. It's the path of least resistance. It requires no self-discipline. This comes as naturally as anything to you, provoking and envying, and to me. The problem is it's out of step with the Spirit. And so we find out something very interesting about pride here. It rears its head wherever you are on the pecking order. Whether you're at the top or the bottom or in the middle, however much influence we have, we're in danger of becoming conceited. And this, this thing, pride, is at the heart of sin. If anyone's ever said that you're a proud person, they're not complimenting you. They might think they are, but it, this is not a compliment for a Christian. It's a suggestion that we take on that we need to repent. Because pride is the reason people don't come to Jesus for forgiveness. God says you've got to, you've got to admit your need. And the cross deals with your problem. The proud person says, I don't think I'm that bad. I'm, I'm living a reasonably impressive life, and God should acknowledge that. But what makes us think that God has a responsibility to acknowledge us? Pride. Pride's what makes us think that. We've got things upside down. We're his creation. He's the creator. Anyone who says, I don't know what God has initiated, I don't want what God has initiated for the world, they, they certainly will not receive it. They won't receive forgiveness. So the first principle then of the new creation is this principle of non-comparison and at the heart of it is the issue of pride. All have sinned alike and have fallen short of the glory of God, but all alike are offered forgiveness through the cross. And this means there is only one kind of boasting in the church and Paul does a bit of it himself in verse 14. He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So the, pr the principle of non-comparison. Secondly, the second principle of the new creation is the principle of sin exposure. I told you they weren't always comfortable. Uh, in some ways, uh, this is similar to the question of non-comparison. Because at the heart of our resisting um, pride and resisting comparison is the reality that we're all alike sinners. And this sin was paid for at the cross and the cost was mighty high. And God paid it willingly and he sent his spirit as well to be transforming us and changing us getting rid of this sin, cleansing us progressively from the effects of the flesh. The point is, sin must go. God is busy at work getting rid of sin. It's got to go. God's whole salvation agenda is about this. Through the Son cancelling the curse that sin has over us, through the Spirit winding back its effects on us, He's gathering a holy people. The new creation is all about God's holy presence and if we're to be in the, the presence eternally of the holy god 
We can only be holy, and that's what he is doing in us. And this, what we have here is an aspiration for you that God has. God has this aspiration for you, and it far, far outstrips any aspirations that you have for yourself. We sell ourselves short with our aspirations for our lives. I mean, we can only imagine temporal benefits. We want to look good. Well, that's great, but, you know, we get wrinkly and we get grey and we start to fall apart. Looking good is temporary, right? I told you this would be painful. <laughs> we want to live comfortably. Is that what you aspire for yourself? Well, that's great too, but all I, what I hear from elderly people is that life gets very uncomfortable. It doesn't matter how nice your house is, your bones are hurting. Your eyes are failing. And your options for comfortable living you need to bring in a professional to help you live comfortably. I mean, comfort is temporary, isn't it? We aspire to be well regarded. And we've just looked at how inappropriate it is for believers to want to be compared with each other. But even if you are well regarded, that's temporary too. Because people move on to the, to the next thing constantly. And, you know, the eulogies at your funeral might be the ultimate in glowing accolades, but you don't get to be there to hear them. It's temporal. We can only imagine temporal benefits. We can only aspire to temporal uh, things. But your Creator wants you to have eternal, never-ending benefits. He actually wants to give you the supreme accolade that a human being can receive. You know, the words from his mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. Wouldn't you like to hear those words? Oh, yes. He wants to fill your life with comfort in his presence. And he wants you to look good too. You know, you're going to look more glorious in eternity than any catwalk model or movie star. Come on. This is going to be good. But this transformation is a holiness transformation. It requires the exposure of your sin. And that is a painful process. Chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that's all of us, you should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you too may be tempted. Now, I don't know how comfortably this idea sits with you, but we need to help each other to be holy, not simply by, you know, comforting words, oh, you're, you're you know, be of good cheer. Uh, those words are useful, but they're also, we, we need words of rebuke. Now, I don't think this means we sit around watching and waiting. Ah, gotcha. Um, ready to pounce the moment we see a flaw in another person. But rather, we want the best for each other, and we know that the best that we can have is holiness in the eyes of God. And so if the need arises, we do the difficult thing. Perhaps we pull a person aside. Perhaps we emphasize things like, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I don't, I'm not a judge. I, um, 
perhaps you emphasize, you know, we're all on a journey. We're all seeking holiness. We, we all fail in different ways. Um, but I want to say to you, dot, dot, dot. And however you, pull, however you put it, the goal is not to pull a person down when you are trying to um, talk to them about a sin, but to restore them using Paul's word, to lift them up. And notice that he, Paul said he knows this is going to be a sensitive area for us, and so he says restore each other gently. Gentleness is one of our, the fruits of the Spirit. There's a risk, isn't there, that rebuke creates rifts in relationships. And it's going to be much worse if we haven't got our heads around this principle of non-comparison, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, it may be better to involve a pastor. Sometimes it's better not to involve anyone else at all. How do you go about doing this? Well, Jesus actually gives us a set of steps when we're dealing with a brother or sister's sin against us in Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to quote Jesus here, a few verses. He says to us, If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen... Take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, an unbeliever. And so what Jesus has given us here is a four-stage escalation process. Sin needs to be dealt with and ultimately unrepentant sin doesn't belong, doesn't fit here in the church. Um, we have to purge the church of unrepentant sin. Uh, but there, and you know, there are actually times when a person may need to be asked to leave because they won't acknowledge their sin. Now, we are a place that is welcoming to sinners, don't get me wrong, but we also need to be repenting of our sin. Uh, we want to avoid that situation where there is just stubbornness that will not be acknowledged in an area. So the, the rule of thumb that Jesus is pointing out is always start one-to-one. -one. Rebuke always works best when there is courageous, uh, an act of courage and gentleness enough to raise the issue and vigorously avoid gossip, of course. You don't need the third party unless it gets escalated, you understand? And when the person is, who is being rebuked is humble enough to receive a criticism and take necessary steps, then you know what follows? Spiritual growth. You never forget when someone does this for you. I remember. I was in my 20s um, and um, I, was I remember being confronted by a woman in the church who was a few years older than me. She told me that whenever I was in conversation with her, I seem to be looking anywhere else but at her. And I just hadn't realized. And uh, when she told me this, I knew straight away that actually um, this was not just you know, about her wanting eye contact or something silly. This was actually about my approach that had been sinful. I knew it. She wasn't just being petty. I actually had often been more interested in you know, who was walking past or, um, you know, whatever else was going on around the room than the person in front of me. And perhaps for me it was fear of missing out. I'm not sure. Whatever it was, it was a horrible way to treat people. 
And I'm very thankful for that conversation and for many others like it over the years because the Spirit works in us through these kinds of interactions, difficult as they are. Okay, so the second principle, let me wind this up. Uh, The principle of sin exposure, um, let me quote from Paul just to to wrap this one up. Verses 7 to 9, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man or woman reaps what he or she sows, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Principle three of living in the new creation is the principle, I'm sure you can guess this one, the principle of love. This is in many ways the most obvious one, isn't it? Uh, maybe even doesn't need to be said, we think. In fact, even those outside of Christianity might argue you don't need to be a Christian in order to love. The other two, maybe it's a, you vacillate on, but this one, you know, it's just so obvious. But is it possible that Christians loving people both inside and outside of the church have actually had already a profound influence on society over 2,000 years? Is this possible? This week I heard an interview on the radio uh, that Miff Warhurst on the ABC was doing with historian and apologist John Dixon. John is a, a um, very, um, very helpful apologist and he's re- recently published a book called Is Jesus History? And in the interview with Miff, he talked about the extraordinary impact that Christianity had on the Roman world and then subsequently, I guess, the West, as we call it. John said, this group, talking about Christians, had no power, no army, no legislative ability. They were the ultimate bottom-up organization. They were from the lower classes generally, and they upended the Roman world. Is that just a fluke? In a Roman world suffocating under the weight of hierarchy and violence and poverty, Christianity's emphasis on love, on communities of love, on caring for each other was massively influential. That's as good an historical analysis of the growth of Christianity as anything, John says. Even atheists today believe in love, but where did it come from? It came from this wonderful saviour, Jesus of Nazareth, who broke with all the social norms and structures and he washed his disciples' feet. That was an appalling thing to do in his society. He touched the untouchable. He served the ones who followed him. He loved the unlovely, those that people would call the unlovable. And he said, go and do likewise. And now, you know, even in our society, you can even talk about unconditional love, can't you? And that's, that's seen as a virtue. It's very different from conditional love. Conditional love we we don't struggle with, you know, or obligatory love or love of people like yourself or love that flows out of your passions and feelings. But if you take on Jesus' love challenge, the unconditional love challenge, we continue the revolution. So we live in a time of increasing uncertainty, increasing tribalism, increasing hedonism, arguably, 
What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's not the soppy romantic type, though. It's, um, it's the gritty, self-sacrificial, subversive love of Jesus, who even when we were enemies, he died for sinners. So how does Paul put this in Galatians 6? Verse 2, he says, Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. That law of love, the Lord your God with all your heart, the law of love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 6, he says, The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. We help each other out of love. But the flip side's true too. Verse 5, each one should carry their own load. Is that love? Well, we don't want to be a burden on each other, do we? So there is a sense in which, uh, you know, we take responsibility. Uh, although there will be times when others will need to carry your burdens for you and you will need to let them love you, uh, but you don't take advantage of it. We don't be lazy. But the challenge here isn't loving those who are easy to love. Anyone can do that. But Paul says, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So what does this mean for people of different race? Love. What does this mean for people of different cultures and languages, people that we struggle to understand and so we find it hard to go and talk to them and we sort of don't want to because it's going to be difficult? What, what does it mean for that kind of situation? Love. What does it mean for the refugee? Love. What's it mean for people of different sexuality? Love. What's it mean for people who are greedy, immoral, cruel, violent, thankless? Love. We are all alike sinners. Just a word of clarity, though. If you are in danger from someone... The, loving, the most loving thing to do might be to take yourself out of the situation where that person can sin against you. That might actually be the act of love. Because love isn't about perpetuating or encouraging sin or just you know, letting the sinner always get whatever the sinner feels like. Love is about seeking what is good for people, even at cost to yourself. And this is subversive behavior, that's the point. We don't react and respond the way others do. We keep in step with the Spirit who empowers us as he brings transformation through us. Well, to conclude, is there a word for Trinity Church, Victor Harbour, from Galatians for this moment? I hope you've picked up by now that the, um, the letter to Galatians is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that clear? Have we we've got that? Eight weeks? Whew. Um. The gospel of Jesus Christ, who, and this is from chapter 1, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's how the letter began. The gospel is forgiveness of past sins. It's hope for the future life with God. And this gospel is also the foundation for present living. It's the foundation 
of the three principles of the new creation that we've looked at today, the principle of non-comparison, that we're all in the same boat. We all need God's grace. We all need this cross. The principle of sin exposure, because God is enabling your holiness through this. And the principle of love, because God does all of this out of love for us, and so we love others. So what does it mean for Trinity Church and the gospel? I, I want to say the gospel is important. Know it. Protect it. Prioritize it. And share it. That is, know it. You, you know, dwell deeply and regularly on this message. Never let it become uh, old hat. I will sing the wondrous story, you know, over and over again if necessary. So know it. Protect it. You know, beware of people who want to water it down, who kind of just, you know, want to maybe contradict it or undermine it. Protect it in what you say and how you defend it. Prioritize it in your own life and here in the church, particularly if you're in any leadership of a home group or on the leadership team or whatever. Put the message of grace on the top of the priority list. This is what our church needs to be on about. We don't always need to you know, use the word gospel every time, but we need to have the gospel in the, you know, just in the center of our vision and share it. Tell, tell, tell the wondrous story of what Christ has done for you. So, you know, maybe you are hoping for something very particular about where, you know, Trinity Church is up to right now and what the message is for this moment. Uh, well, that is a very particular message. Know it, protect it, prioritize it and share it, this gospel. At this moment in history, some may feel that the gospel has reached its use-by date. But do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, thanks so much for this letter. Thank you for Paul and his circumstances and, his, uh, and everything that uh, led to him uh, writing this to your uh, inspiration of his mind and heart by your spirit, uh, giving us these words. We thank you for uh, what Jesus did and for what your spirit is doing in us. Uh, we thank you for the way your spirit has gripped Christians for millennia and uh, the way so much of society has been turned upside down and so much of what we know today uh, has inherited um, bits and pieces from the gospel. Father, we just pray that in this age, this, this era that is ahead of us, that you would help us not to think ever that the gospel is past its use-by date, but to know that your gospel gives a future to those with faith in Christ. And Father, we know that your kingdom is growing, not shrinking. And our Lord God, for ourselves, we pray that you would fill our heart with uh, thankfulness and a determination to follow Christ, to accept every day the realities of the gospel, not to compare ourselves with one another, not to be upset when we discover sin uh, and never to hold back from loving uh, Father, please, would you do your transforming work now and in us until the day Christ returns. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.